Well, good morning, Valley Bible Church. It is great to see you. Thank you for joining us here on our online platform. We are journeying through the Gospel of John. We're in chapters 2, 3, and 4. We're doing a, a series that we're calling Revolutionary. And what, what we're doing with this series is we're, we're really seeing how Jesus had these kind of revolutionary conversations and kind of interactions with people. That, that Jesus really forced many of his first century hearers to really rethink their understanding of what it means to follow God. And I think if we're honest, we've felt that similar challenge that as we look at these encounters, we see that Jesus forces us to rethink what we know it means to follow him or our understanding of what it means to follow him. We've seen in these chapters, some of these encounters have been in these one-on-one situations. We saw in chapter two, where Jesus has kind of this radical encounter and kind of rough conversation with his mother, Mary. We saw in chapter three, where Jesus speaks to a religious teacher by the name of Nicodemus and really radically reshapes his understanding of what it means to follow God. And in chapter four, where we're starting today, uh, we're gonna see the same thing. Jesus is gonna have this interaction with a woman from Samaria, and he's really gonna force her to rethink what she thinks it means to follow God. And I think if we're honest with ourselves and carefully walk through the passage together, we're going to see that same challenge to us, that maybe our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus needs to change or adjust a little bit. Now, before we get to that passage, let me ask you this question. Have you ever missed the big picture because of a small detail? Have you, you ever missed the really important stuff because of something that wasn't as important? The really great and, 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 and grand purpose because of something good. Let me give you an example. I was talking with this couple who homeschooled their children. And, and we're doing this because Lindsay and I are trying to rethink how we're going to attack the school year for our own children. And, and, and this mom who homeschooled her kids, she shared this really enlightening conversation she had with her husband one day. He, he comes back from work and, and she just had a challenging day with the kids. And so her husband comes in and she says, okay, hon, you have a choice. You could have creative kids and a cluttered house, or you can have a clean house and dull kids. Now, what was she saying there? She was saying, look, it's good to have a clean house, but the grand picture, the big picture, the great purpose is to have creative kids. Now, sometimes we do this spiritually we miss the, the kind of the big picture because of a small detail. Uh, something good, not bad, but something good captures our attention and we lose the grand purpose, the great purpose, the, the bigger picture. And we're going to see how Jesus in his encounter with this woman at Samaria has to force her to, to rethink what is truly important. She's going to present some needs to Jesus But Jesus is really going to press her to see you need to find your deeper needs, the bigger picture. So journey with me. We're going to go to John chapter 4, starting with verse 1. And what I want to do is kind of summarize kind of Jesus' teaching with this woman of Samaria. We're going to summarize it in our main idea for this morning. We call it our our big idea. If you're only going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. It's kind of a a way of summarizing Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well, this Samaritan woman. And we could summarize it this way. It's one of the sayings of my grandfather and maybe one of the sayings of your grandfather, maybe something you've heard or something you've even said. The big idea today is this. Don't 
lose the forest for the trees. Or sorry, don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't miss the forest for the trees. The idea there is you don't want to miss the big picture, the, the grand picture, uh, the, the, the kind of great goal because you're looking at something good. Uh, you're missing the forest because of the trees. Your, your focus is limited, it's narrow, and you're missing the more important issue. And I want to tell you, I think we're going to learn from this interaction a very specific lesson for us that is very applicable to the situation we find ourselves in even right now in our current day. So let's unpack this interaction. We're going to get some setting a little bit here, kind of understand what what kind of a, a context this conversation is going to happen in. So let's start with John chapter 4. Look at it, verse 1. It says this, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So let's stop there. What's going on? So Jesus is sensing an an urgency to leave where he's at. So he's going to travel up north, and he wants to go through Samaria. It says he must go through Samaria, or he needed to go through Samaria. Now, the reason it's putting some necessity on there, verse 4 says he had to pass through. What it means probably is that, not that this is the only route, we know historically there was probably about three routes that Jesus could have taken. And only one of those would have gone through Samaria. Only one of those would have brought him to the town where he's about to have this conversation. Why did Jesus choose this route and not the other two? Well, we know from a historian by the name of Josephus that this was just the quicker route. It was the, it was the easy way to go. It was quick. It was the shortest kind of, kind of distance. And so if we were to put it in our GPS now, that would be the correct way to go unless maybe there was traffic. Right? So he says, I, I got to go there. Right? Uh, John says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, there might be something more, though. Uh, than just kind of uh, uh, geographical ease, that this is just the, the quickest route. And the reason I say that is because John uses this word, he had to, or that phrase, but it's only one word in the Greek. He uses it very interestingly. Oftentimes he uses it to show divine necessity, meaning this is God's plan. This must be this way. And we'll see as we unpack this very pivotal conversation in the life of this woman and a pivotal conversation for our lives as well from what we learned from it, that there might have been more than just, hey, this is a quick route. It may be, not only is this geographically friendly, but this is what God wants. God is lining up a perfect conversation for Jesus to have with this woman of Samaria. Now, I said it was the quicker route, but it's not the, uh, the easiest route. And the reason why is because Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. And we're going to see this played out as Jesus interacts a little more here. But let me just give you a little bit of the history. Because these two groups do not like each other at all. And here's why. 
The animosity really goes all the way back. We can look all the way back to 2 Kings chapter 17. This is when it kind of all started. So hundreds of years before Jesus' time. What happened is the people of God used to be one kingdom. But that kingdom got split. And the northern kingdom was called Israel. And the southern kingdom was called Judah. And these kingdoms fell at different times because of their sin. So the northern kingdom was taken by a power called the Assyrians. So the Assyrians came in and they took the people. They took all the northern tribes away. Judah still remained. Later they would fall to the Babylonians. But the Assyrians took all these people out of the land. Then what they did is they took five nations that they had conquered. And they took all five of those nations and they put them in the northern kingdom. And these people from five different nations then started to intermarry with the people that were left there. So now Jews would look at them as kind of um, these half-breeds is what they would call them. A a Jew would actually use the term Samaritan kind of as a a curse word, a a word meant to be abusive to somebody. Like if you wanted to call somebody a name uh, and you were Jewish, you would use that term, oh, you're a Samaritan. We actually see this later in John chapter 8, where Jesus is insulted in that same way. They call Jesus a Samaritan. They're insulting him. They look at him and they say, you're a, you're a half-breed. You're not, you're not pure blood. You're not pure Israelite. And their theology, too, was a, little, was a little messed up because when they brought these other people from other nations, they brought their gods with them. And in 2 Kings chapter 17, it says they worshipped Yahweh, Israel's God, but they also also worship these other gods as well. So, so this kind of half-breed kind of people kind of form, this kind of um, uh, syncretistic kind of practices started to develop where they're worshiping multiple gods and they're intermarrying with the people of Israel. And now they're called the people of Samaria. Well, when that southern kingdom was taken away by the Babylonians, the Babylonians were then conquered by the Persians. And then a Persian king by the name of Cyrus lets the people go back in. And these people going back in are the Jews. And they want to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls. So the Samaritans, or the, for people from Samaria, say, hey, we would love to help you build this temple. Can, can we help you? We're, we're like brothers. And the Jews said, oh, no, absolutely not. In fact, they made strict rules We will not marry uh, any of your sons or daughters. We will not intermarry with you. We see this with Ezra and Nehemiah, that they they push these people away. So the Samaritans said, well, fine. If if you're not going to help us or let us help you build the temple, we'll build our own temple. And they did that. We're going to build our own temple and we're going to have our own Bible. We're only going to take the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And we're going to change a little bit, but this is what we're sticking with. We have our temple, now we have our book. You guys do your thing. Well, about 100 years before Jesus was born, a little bit over that, a Jewish king would come in and he would destroy that temple. And when Jesus was a baby, or about what we would call maybe in elementary school, some Samaritans came in and defiled the temple in Jerusalem by throwing a dead man's bones in this temple. After Jesus' death and resurrection... When the first century church was being built, there were some Jews from Galilee who were journeying through Samaria. And and the Samaritans killed this large kind of caravan of these travelers. So these guys don't like each other. 
I mean, you'd almost think of them as like rival gangs, that, that blood has been shed. They don't like each other. They've been at war. They've been battling. So Jesus is on this journey. Yes, it's a, it's a quicker route, but it is not an easier route. And then he has this conversation with this woman. And look at her surprise that Jesus is even initiating a conversation with her. So now that we have the kind of that backdrop, let's continue on and see this lady. It says, verse 6, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus was, or Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, first off, we have to see, okay, Jesus is tired. He's probably journeyed, from what we know, the distance is approximately about 40 miles. So it's just like a day and a half's journey for Jesus. So his disciples would, would take a whole day of travel and then a half day. So that brings them at the sixth hour, which is noon, and, and how they calculate uh, time there. So this is the hottest part of the day. Jesus has just traveled 40 miles on foot. I mean, he's tired. He's sitting by this well, and he's thirsty. And a woman comes, and she is about to go to the well. So right now, the need that is present before us is Jesus is thirsty, and this woman is thirsty. Now, what Jesus is going to do is see this woman and say, well, you have a deeper need than just thirst. You need something more. You're coming just to get water, but you need more. You need the gift that only I can offer you. But this woman coming at this hour is a little strange. You see, Jesus coming at this hour actually makes sense. His journey would have taken him about that long a day and a half. So Jesus arriving at noon is very understandable. But this woman coming to the well at this time is not very understandable. First, she's alone. There's nobody else with her, which is odd for a woman to be traveling uh, alone. That wasn't very safe in the first century world. But she's traveling at the hottest time of the day in first century Palestine. Usually women would go early in the morning or late at night to get water. But she's doing some really physical labor at the hottest time of the day. The most uncomfortable time of the day. And yet she is taking on this hard labor. Well, the reason she's doing this is because she's trying to avoid people. And we'll see this later. She has some shame. She has some guilt. She has some sin. She just doesn't want to be around anybody. Now, Jesus knows all of this. He won't reveal it all up front, but Jesus knows this woman needs more than water. We could say her thirst for water is kind of like the tree, but there is a forest. There is something much larger that she must see, and Jesus is going to force her to see the forest and not just focus on the tree, not just focus on the small need, but she has a much bigger need. Look at how Jesus' interaction unfolds with her. Let's jump to verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She, she knows the history. She knows the past. She's looking at him and thinking, Why are you talking to me? Well, we're in rival gangs. <laughs> Our people don't like each other. Your people destroyed my people's temple. We've been at odds with each other. 
Uh, some of my people desecrated the temple at Jerusalem. We don't like each other. You guys pushed us away when we tried to give you help. Why would you talk to me? Now, not only is she a Samaritan, but she's a woman, which in the first century world would be very taboo for Jesus to initiate a conversation with a woman in public. We have uh, writings from rabbis, religious teachers of the time, that said it was inappropriate to, to talk to a woman in public, even if that woman was your wife. I mean, that's a pretty strict line. Now, we can't say that just because a rabbi wrote this that everybody practiced that. But it shows you that, that there was a kind, of a, a, um, a, a kind of unspoken kind of way of doing things. And what Jesus is doing is very radical and kind of revolutionary in speaking to this woman who's a Samaritan. This, this conversation shouldn't be happening. But Jesus must have this conversation. And he must get to the deeper need that this woman has. Deeper than her thirst for water. She needs something more. Let's look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Do you see right there? You can tell that Jesus is hinting at something much deeper, that he is zooming out from just her present need. He's saying, look, I asked you for some water, but if you knew who I am, And if you knew the gift that I could give, you would ask me for water. Now, now think about how puzzling this scene is for this woman. Jesus doesn't have a bucket. Jesus is is tired and wearied, sitting at the well. He's the one asking her to fetch water. Now Jesus is speaking that he could fetch water for her. Yet he has no instrument to do so. And then when Jesus speaks, he says that he could give living water. Now, what does that mean? Living water would mean simply just, just moving water, fresh water. It would, it would refer to the spring, the underground spring that was feeding the well. So this would be something you'd have to go even deeper to get. And this well is incredibly deep. And the woman is looking at him thinking, how on earth can this man get water deeper than the well? How can he get the water that is even feeding the well? How can he give me fresh spring water, moving water? How can he do this? She, she doesn't understand that Jesus is talking about something much, much deeper. That Jesus wants her to come to grips with the reality of his identity. You don't understand who I am. And you don't understand the gift that I can give you. Look at her misunderstanding. Verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Jesus, you have no bucket. And this well, is it's incredibly deep. How are you going to give me fresh, living, spring water? How are you going to do that? What's happening right now? She's focused on the tree. She's missing the forest. Clearly, Jesus is talking about something deeper. And Jesus is going to push, and we're going to see this several times in his conversation. He's going to push the conversation more, press it further, trying to get her to to zoom out and see the big picture, to see the forest and not get lost in the trees. 
Right? Look at how Jesus kind of pushes forward a little bit. Or actually, the woman uh, responds to Jesus before he speaks again. Look at verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his son and his livestock. Notice how she says, are you greater than Jacob? Now, we know in, in the Greek, that question is anticipating a negative answer. So what she's saying is, you're not greater than Jacob. So she's, the way the, 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 the construct of the, the Greek is, we can tell that the answer anticipates a no. So she's saying basically a statement, not a question. She's saying, you're not greater than Jacob. So what is she doing? She's diminishing the identity of Jesus And she doesn't believe that he could give her a gift of living water. This is exactly what Jesus said she needed to realize. Jesus said up front, if you knew who I was and the gift that I could give, you would ask me. And she's just making the statement, I don't think you can give me any gift. And I don't think you're better than Jacob. So she's very abrupt to Jesus to say, no, Jesus, I'm not allowing you to press this conversation any further. I don't believe in who you're saying you are, and I don't believe you can give me anything that I need. Well, look how Jesus responds. Verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never thirst again. Right there is an indication that Jesus is talking about something different than just water, something different than just H2O. He's saying, the water I can give will take away all your thirst. You'll never thirst again. Clearly, Jesus is talking about some, something much larger than just this, this liquid she could pull from the well. He explains further, look at verse, halfway through verse 14. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, Welling up to eternal life. Again, another indication Jesus is talking about something much more than just liquid here. He's saying, what I'm going to give you is going to quench your thirst. And then it's going to do this. It's going to cause a well to be in you. And that well is going to fill up. And it's going to fill up to this culminating moment where it overflows into eternal life. Jesus is saying, I can satisfy the hunger that you have. I can satisfy it now. And in the future, you will have this culminating satisfaction in eternal life. If we just kind of zoom out and kind of unpack Jesus' teaching on eternal life, we'll see that eternal life is a a present reality, but also a future reality. It's something we can have now, but something we also enjoy later. It's something that starts and satisfies now, something we can grasp and hold on to, but it's also something that will culminate in kind of this this climax of joy and satisfaction with our relationship with God in the new heavens and new earth. It is eternal life. He gives us life now, but that life is eternal, and it grows into this, it kind of flowers into this kind of full-formed enjoyment of who God is. This is what Jesus is saying, I can offer you. Here's the gift that I can give. It's living water. But she still doesn't get it. All right, her focus is still very, very narrow. This is so similar to the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, the religious teacher. We we saw this in chapter 3 when when Jesus kind of had a a double level of meaning, if you want to call it that. 
Jesus told Nicodemus, and we saw this in chapter 3, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus was only thinking physical. He could only put his mind in the physical things. He couldn't think in a spiritual way. And so Nicodemus said, I I don't understand. How can a man be born again? Does he enter again into his mother's womb? And Jesus is saying, you're missing it, man. No, I'm talking about a deeper meaning here. Same thing is true here. The same misunderstanding is happening. She just can't get it. But Jesus will not let the conversation go. He presses it further. Look at verse 15. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Do you see that? She doesn't understand that he's he's not talking about physical water. She's still thinking, wow, if I can never be thirsty again, well, I'll never have to go to this well again. I'll never have to journey again. I have to take all these steps to get here. She, She doesn't get it. So at this point, Jesus kind of strategically turns the conversation. He really pivots the conversation. It's like she's staring at the tree right here. And Jesus is going to kind of just take her up in a helicopter view and say, no, see the forest. You're missing the picture. Right? Look at the next question or statement that Jesus makes to her. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Very interesting. I think it's maybe lost on us here how kind of taboo this kind of conversation would be for a gentleman in the first century world. It's taboo for for this Jew, for Jesus, to be speaking to a Samaritan. It's taboo for for any gentleman to be speaking to uh, a woman. In public, it is incredibly taboo to speak to a woman about her husband. And, and, and here's why think about that question for a moment. This woman is coming alone, she's coming to this well, she's coming at noon, the hottest time of the day, where people wouldn't come unless they were trying to avoid crowds. So it's safe to assume that somebody and anybody probably who would see this woman coming knew that she had um, a bad reputation. And so Jesus, this man who's alone, there's nobody else but these two people, is now talking to this woman, which is something he shouldn't do. And now he asks, hey, where's your husband? It'd be like kind of in our modern day conversation. If you were to go somewhere... And say, as a woman, you're just standing in a crowd and maybe your, your husband is away. Maybe you're pumping gas at the station. I don't know. And, and, and somebody strikes up a conversation with you. And, and that man says, hey, uh, where's your boyfriend? What do you think that man is asking? He's not curious to meet your boyfriend. He's wondering if he could be your boyfriend. He wants to know, hey, is there any competition here? Now, clearly, that is not Jesus' intention. But it's incredibly hard to imagine that this woman does not see this as maybe his intention. That this man is talking to her. They were talking about water. She's a little confused by that. She's a little alarmed that she's even having this conversation with a man who's Jewish. And now he's asking about her husband. Is he trying to to flirt? Is he trying to see if I'm available? 
That's how awkward this kind of scene is right now. Look at her response. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. It's a very interesting comment. She very much may be saying, I am available. That's what this interaction means. Now look at how Jesus in his response, he's going to narrow the focus and say, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not the big picture I want to get to. There's there's a big picture I want to get to, and it's your spiritual need. Look at how Jesus shows off his supernatural knowledge of this woman's past. Verse 18. She says, I have no husband. And he says, uh, or sorry, verse 17. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. But, Jesus says, that's not the whole truth. Let me unpack the whole truth. Verse 18. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. Now, it's hard to understand what that last phrase means. I think it's fair to, to, to say, yes, she's had five husbands, which that's a lot of marriages. And back then in the first century world, uh, three was kind of the max that was seen as permissible. So she, she's had a lot. And a- after five, you would think, okay, what's the common denominator here? She probably has had uh, some reason or, or major fault in five husbands uh, divorcing her. But then Jesus says, and the one you're now with, is not your husband. This could mean two things. It could mean it's somebody else's husband, which would be even more scandalous. Or you're with a man, but you're not committed to him as a husband. You're cohabitating is what we would call it now. So Jesus really, you see, he just presses the moment. And she maybe feels like, okay, is this man being flirtatious? What's going on here? And Jesus says, no, I'm talking about your sin. I'm talking about your shame. I'm talking about the reason you come at 12 o'clock during the day in all the heat. The reason you take every step in the dirt, in the heat. The reason you are doing this physical labor in the most uncomfortable time of the day. Let's talk about that. What shame makes you come at this time of the day? And he says, I know what it is. You have a, a, a sexual sinful past. Wow, she, I mean, Jesus just strikes to the heart. He says, you need to, don't think about you need water. You need what I can give you, the gift that I can give you. You need living water. You need to be satisfied in this way. That's what you're missing. Now she starts to change her perspective on Jesus' identity. First, she almost insulted him and said, well, you're not greater than Jacob. Now she switches her opinion a little bit. Look at her response to Jesus's just supernatural knowledge of her past. Verse 19. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Like clearly you, you know something. Now this next thing she gonna, is going to say, some people have read it as kind of a, um, She's trying to get out of the conversation. Like Jesus just put her sin right there on the spot, right out there in front of her. Maybe she's like feeling awkward and wants to avoid where this is going. I don't think that's what's happening. I think right now she is saying, okay, you're a prophet, which is significant in the, in the Samaritan religion. Because the Samaritans, like I said, only had the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they were looking for a Messiah, for a hero. 
But their idea of Messiah only came from these five books. And in these five books, and specifically in the book of Deuteronomy, it spoke of a prophet. I believe they called him Tahib, a prophet who would come, like Moses, this great prophet. So when she says, I perceive you're a prophet, I think what she's saying here is, wait a second. Like, you may be the one that we're looking for. So now she's going to ask him a very deep theological question. Look at what she says. And I don't think this is to distract. I think this is an honest question. She recognizes the supernatural nature of Jesus' knowledge, thinks he is maybe the prophet they've been waiting for. So she says, okay, well then let's talk some theology. Let's talk about worship. Verse 20. Our fathers worship on this mountain. She'd be pointing at Mount Gerizim. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So now she says, okay, so, so, so where does true worship lie? Is it Jerusalem, like the Jews say? Or is it in this other temple that was built by, by my forefathers when, when they were rejected by your forefathers? When you say you can't help us build the temple, we built our own temple on Mount Gerizim. We, we built it because that was close to where Abraham made his first altar in Genesis chapter 12. And, and it was the place where Joshua chapter 8, where the, the, the people would shout a blessing over the people of Israel, where the leaders would shout blessings on them if they obeyed the covenant. So this is a very significant mountain in the storyline of God's people. And she's saying, so what's the proper place of worship? I think what she's saying here, again, not a distraction. I I think she's saying, okay, I need to realign my life here a little bit. I've got some sin. Yes, I've got some stain there. I've got some regret there. All right, where should I worship then? Well, look what Jesus says. Again, I think what Jesus is going to do, even though she's getting closer, she's still facing the trees. She's beyond the idea of thirst. She's understanding the idea of what Jesus is talking about, spiritual things. But she's still not seeing the whole picture. So Jesus is going to say, no, zoom out. It is not about a temple. Look at how Jesus responds. Verse 21, Jesus said, woman... Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, and they could see Mount Gerizim for where they're at. So he's probably pointing to it. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus essentially is correcting her. If we're going to talk about a temple in the Old Testament, the temple that, that, that was designed by God to be the place where he manifests his presence then yes, Jerusalem's the right spot. But Jesus again is going to say, but this is not important right now. That's the forest. Or sorry, that's the tree. You need to zoom out. Look at what Jesus says. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, the prophet, and he is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. And Jesus said to her, I am, or I who speak to you, am he. Notice what Jesus says. It's not about Gerizim. It's it's not about Jerusalem. It's not about temples. No, worship is in spirit and in truth. 
What does Jesus mean by that? What we don't want to do is kind of read this as, as 21st century you know, uh, American readers with our vocabulary. Sometimes we see the word spirit and, and we think of uh, a spiritual or passionate or emotional, right? And, and that's just not how John uses the term spirit. John doesn't use the term spirit to, to, to speak about, about us, our spirit. He uses the term spirit to speak of the third member of the Trinity. This is his dominant use of that term. And this is the term being used here. He's saying you must worship in the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. You need to be worshiping in the power of the Spirit. And you need to be worshiping in truth. This goes back to what Jesus said at the very beginning. That if you knew who I was and the gift that I give, what gift does Jesus give? We see this later. He speaks of it in John chapter 14. And he speaks of it uh, uh, to his disciples later and says, I'm going to give you what? The gift of the Spirit. He does it at, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 1. He gives them the gift of the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? Jesus explains later in the Gospel of John that the Spirit that Jesus gives then points back to him and the truthfulness of his claims. So Jesus gives the Spirit, that's the gift he gives, and then the Spirit inside of us reminds us of the words of Jesus and the importance of Jesus. This is what Jesus means when he's saying we must worship in spirit and in truth. We must worship in a way that is empowered by the Spirit and reflects back on the truth of the historical, resurrected Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. He's not saying you you need to be balanced between head and heart. That's a bad way to read this passage. That's not what spirit and truth means. It doesn't mean truth my intellect, spirit my emotions. No. Now, I do think you need to worship with those in balance, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, forget about location. Forget about where the temple is. I'm making you a temple. This is how radical Jesus' statement is. He says, first, look, yeah, Jerusalem was the right spot. That's what God said. That's what God wanted to set up. But you know what? Scrap that. God's doing a new work. And the work he's doing is inside of you. A living water in you, springing up to eternal life, the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of you. God wants to make you a temple. This is what you're missing. You see this? This woman comes thinking, I'm going to find satisfaction in some water. Or maybe she's thinking, I found satisfaction in this male companionship, right? Or I'm going to find satisfaction if I just get the proper location for religious worship. And Jesus says, "That's, that's the trees, man. You're missing it. Zoom out. See the forest. God wants to give you the Spirit. I want to give you the Spirit. I'm the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I'm the Christ, the prophet, the one you've been waiting for. And I want to give you a gift that makes you a temple. This woman needed to realize that in order to find satisfaction in her life, she didn't need water. She didn't need male companionship. She didn't need the right location for worship. She needed to grasp the identity of who Jesus Christ is and recognize the gift that he could give in the Spirit. She was missing the forest for the trees. Now, we're going to see next week how this unpacks for her more. I think she got it. 
I think she saw what was happening. But I must tell you, I think that principle that Jesus was trying to push toward her mind, to get her to zoom out, to not see the temporal needs, to not see the small details and miss the large detail of what God wanted to do. I think this is so practical and specific to the situation that we're currently in. Let me unpack that for you. I think we need to not miss the forest for the trees. And sadly, I think that this is happening. I think this is happening for the church of Christ. And let me unpack that for you. What I mean by that is this. As, 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 as we see different timelines and different practices of different churches. You know, we're, we're incredibly excited, as, as you saw uh, from Larry and, and in, the, in the video that we posted as well, that we are excited to, to offer not just our online platform where we gather online, but also to gather in our parking lot. We're excited to do that two times in August. We, we're, we're so looking forward to it. And, and everybody is eager and hungry to get back to normal. Right? To just get into the building, to get around each other, to sing near each other, to hear each other sing, to, to listen to live preaching, to be able to say amen. I can't wait to hear amen. Now, all those things, we all hunger for it and we all desire for it. And different churches have different timelines. Right? And you're seeing, sadly, this friction of, well, this church is too slow and this church is too fast. And, and, and I, know, I don't want to speak directly to that stuff. We are very comfortable with the pace that we have and the timeline that we have. And we think that's for us. And that's, that's where we feel comfortable. And we support churches with different other timelines. Some are slower than us. Some are faster than us. And everybody's doing what's according to their conscience and their best judgment. Seeking wisdom from each other, uh, from their eldership, from their leaders, and seeking wisdom in prayer. But what I've noticed is this, is we have this, this overwhelmingly kind of obsessive, I would say even, idea of this location or, or the location of our churches. And, and I wonder in this kind of, I don't want to call it argument, but in these conversations about when to open and how to open and all these timelines, I'm wondering if we're missing the forest for the trees. Now, I think the timelines are important. I think knowing how to reopen safely is important. I do. But I get worried, if I'm honest, that I wonder in all of that thinking, and it's good thinking, are we making too much of this building? Are we making too much of this location? Are we thinking too much about one, four, 77 Willow Avenue. As if this is the temple of God. As if there's a cot in the back that God sleeps in, wakes up on Sunday and comes and hangs out with us. I, I wonder if, if what's being shown is that maybe we've elevated our buildings too much. We've elevated our lo- locations too much. We've elevated our addresses too much. And as important as gathering for worship is, and I think it's extremely important, have we missed that it's not the building, this is not a temple, that God does not sit in the confines 
of, of brick and steel. That God is in you. That you are the temple. This is not, this is not sacred space. This is not holy ground. The only time this place becomes sacred space is when you come in it. When, when small little temples of God come into this building and we're around each other and we get the Holy Spirit in surround sound, all these little temples singing and worshiping God, that's when this place becomes a place that's special. That's when this place becomes a place that is sacred. That's only the time when this place becomes holy ground is when the little temples of God are coming to this location. That's when this place is special. But I wonder if, if, if we've over-idolized and prioritized locational worship. Now, don't, don't hear me that I'm not saying we need to be in proximity. We do. And the moment that we feel it's safe, we're going to be and exercise everything we can to be together again. Absolutely. But I wonder if we've just become a little imbalanced. Because the scriptures are very clear that gathered worship is a priority. But the scriptures are also very clear that scattered worship is a priority. What I mean by that is the worship that happens on Sunday when we meet together is very important. But worship doesn't end when the service is over. And I, I think it's fair to say that the scripture would say, no, worship starts when the service is over. Because then there's scattered worship. There's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. There's worship in your home. There's worship with your family. There's worship with your friends. There's worship at your workplace. And the Bible has a very large definition of what worship is. It's not just three or four songs and hearing a sermon. That's not in anywhere near close to encapsulating what worship is. And I wonder, maybe this is the lesson that God has for us during this pandemic. Is is maybe we've elevated the gathered worship so much that when it's gone, or, or let's just say when it's reinvented, right, when it's not what we want it to be, the reason we feel so dry, the reason we feel so alone, the reason we feel so spiritually depressed is because our scattered worship has been at the bottom the whole time. And so now that this is not what we want it to be, we realize, man, we are on empty. And so my, my encouragement to you this week, my challenge to you this week is to kind of ask yourself that question, how is your worship? How is your worship Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday? How is your scattered worship? I, I know it has to be suffering. I know it has to be struggling. Because gathered worship encourages us in our scattered worship. And, and we don't get that. And I know that. And I can't, man, I, I long for that time. But maybe this is what we can do. Maybe though things aren't the way we want them to be, the way we'd expect them to be, the way they should be. It doesn't mean we have to lose that purpose. The purpose of gathering together is to encourage one another to love and to good deeds. So here's my challenge to you. My challenge is this. Call one person. One person. One brother or sister in Christ. Just one this week. Call them up and say, how are you doing spiritually? How is your worship right now? Can I encourage you? Can I I pray for you? It's true that we can't have the gathering that encourages the scattered worship. But that doesn't mean that a phone call from a brother and sister in Christ 
to just say, hey, I want to check in on you and I want to see how you're doing. Encourage somebody this week, just one person. If everyone would encourage just one, then everyone would get a call. So if you get two calls, now you've got to encourage two people because now that messed up the whole metrics, right? One person, call one person this week and ask them how they're doing. Pray for them. Now, maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. My encouragement to you is the same thing. Don't miss the forest because of the trees. Here's, here's what I mean by that for you. I know that you're feeling alone. Man, I feel alone. I, I get so discouraged. I'm an extrovert. I, I charge up around people. I'm not an introvert. I need people to kind of recharge the batteries. So if you're like that, man, I know you're feeling alone. We, we were made to be social creatures, to interact with other human beings, Right? And you're feeling alone, and that's making you sad, and it's making you depressed, and it's just leaving you in a place where you just, it's just a dark time, right? Can I tell you that that is a tree? It's a small foretaste of the forest of what's coming for you if you don't know Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean by that. See, we were made to be social creatures, to interact with each other, But we were made and designed to commune with God, to have a relationship with God. And the loneliness you feel right now because you're not near friends and family, that loneliness pales in comparison to the loneliness of eternal judgment. The Bible describes hell as a place of suffering, a place of destruction, but also describes it as a place of banishment or abandonment. Jesus says at the day of judgment that he will look at some and say, depart from me, I don't even know you. I think that's probably the most agonizing reality of hell. That the one who made you, who knows you, all the intricate parts of your personality, all your curious little quirks, he knows, he designed, he fashioned. He will one day say to his creation that he knows intimately well, that it says in the scriptures that he wove together in your mother's womb. He is your author. And, and, and if you think the abandonment of a father running away when you were young is hurtful, there's an abandonment that is coming that is so much more detrimental, so much more devastating. And it's not what your heavenly father wants for you. But there is a day when that's coming. And the loneliness you feel now is a foretaste to the forest of loneliness you will feel in eternal judgment. So my encouragement to you this week is to come to Christ. Come to the one who wants to dwell in you. To be in you. And wants to dwell with you forever to commune with you, to dine with you, to sit with you, to love you forever. Come to Christ, the one who you will never know true loneliness if you know him. You'll never know dissatisfaction, true, deep dissatisfaction 
because you'll be satisfied in him. Yes, life will get hard. And people may leave you, but he'll never leave you, nor forsake you. He loves you. And Christ died for you and rose again so that the shame and sin of your past, just like this woman, would not have to be on you. But you can drink from him and be eternally satisfied. So my prayer is that you would come to him. And I'm going to pray here in a moment. And in that prayer, I'm going to offer a prayer for you. And maybe you want to take that step towards Jesus today. Make the day where you finally take Christ for the first time. And if that's you, you can pray a very similar prayer to what I'm going to pray here in a moment. And if that comes from your heart, God will see that. And that'll start a journey, really a journey that this woman started too, a journey of following Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, we love you and we we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Christ, we thank you for who you are, that you are Christ, the victorious, resurrected one, the one who has taken away all of our sin and all of our shame, who's given us living water. We are all thirsty, Lord. We are all hungry. And you are the one, Christ, who satisfies. You are the one who meets our deepest need and longing. Oh, Christ, I pray that we would feel that as we go through this time. Christ, I pray that we would feel your presence as we're in our living rooms. We may not be in the building we want to be, but worship is not about where you are. It's about who's in you. And Holy Spirit, we know that you are in us, that we are still temples when we're in our living rooms. That even though we can't hear our brothers and sisters in the room singing with us, we are still singing to the same Savior And the Spirit is the one empowering us to do so. Let us not lose sight of what the true temple of God is. Father, let us us be blown away by the fact that we are now sacred space and not a building. Father, for those that don't yet know you, but are ready to start a relationship with you, Father, I pray that you'd hear their prayers. I know that you will. I pray that you'd be with them. If that's you and you're watching this and you want to pray, pray to start a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can pray a very simple prayer. You can pray something like this. You can pray, Father, I see. I see that I need you. I see that I'm thirsty, that I'm hungry, that I'm longing for something. I see that I have sin, sin that won't satisfy me, that won't truly meet that hunger, won't quench that thirst. I see that it's it's wrong, and it moves me away from you. But Father, now I see that you provided Jesus Christ as the thing that truly satisfies my soul, that truly takes away all my sin and my shame through his death and resurrection. So, Father, I see this as the forgiveness of my sin. I receive that in faith. And I promise to turn my life over to Jesus Christ as my Lord. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Again, we are so excited to see you soon.
We look forward to seeing you next week. And if you made that decision to follow Jesus Christ today, please contact us. We want to get a Bible in your hand, and we want to see you baptized as well. Thank you, church family, for joining. We'll see you next week.